you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. For the next three weeks, we're going to do an Advent series where we focus on uh, signs that God used to His people to let, him, let them know that the Messiah was coming, that Jesus was coming, that something remarkable and special was happening. And so this morning, we want to start by looking at the sign, uh, ultimately, that God gives to Mary. God gives to Mary. And so, you may remember this, but let me, let me read this uh, for you. It's Luke chapter 1. I'm reading in the ESV, because I think in this particular case, it gives us a little bit better translation. So if, if it's a little bit different than, than you're reading along, that's okay. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I love this next line. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Uh, Almost like, you know, when your kids come to you and tell you how wonderful you are as a parent and you know that the other shoe is about to drop proverbially, right? (laughs) Uh, And behold, oh, excuse me. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will never be an end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be because I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born... A child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her uh, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So what is the sign that God gives to Mary? It's the sign that we talk about a lot in kind of ordering our faith. It's called the virgin birth. You've heard that theological statement before. God's sign to Mary is that she's going to have a baby, and it's not going to be produced of human means. It's going to be a miraculous child. And ultimately, it's a fulfillment of prophecy of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You can read there later. We'll reference it a little bit as we go on. Uh, where, where God uh, says to the king of Judah, Ahaz, uh, actually says to him, why don't you ask me for a sign, King Ahaz? And the king says, I'm not going to ask you for a sign. And God says, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. The virgin will be with child. Right. And so uh, we'll talk about sort of what that means and what's going on here. But this is, becomes the ultimate fulfillment of that. When the angel Gabriel comes... Uh, Mary would have understood these things that happened in, in, in the past in the, in the people of God. The angel Gabriel comes and says this, gives her a sign. She begins to probably understand just what's going on here. Probably not in the fullest sense of all of it, uh, but begins to understand it here. So we need to ask ourselves this question this morning. Um, why is the virgin birth so important? What if we didn't have it? Uh, what if this was never a sign given? What if things took place differently? How would things be different? Why is the virgin birth important? Uh, well, we read in, in Matthew chapter 1 
that when, when the angel comes to Joseph, remember Joseph realizes that his wife is pregnant and he needs to figure out what is he going to do with this situation. Uh, and He's actually going to handle it in a righteous way. He's going to put her away quietly, divorce her quietly. And so she's not publicly ridiculed. She could have been killed in that day and age for this kind of behavior. Uh, but the angel comes to him and says, this son is from God, and when he's born, you're going to name him Jesus. Remember the next line? Because he will save his people from their sins. Because he will save his people from their sins. So he's to be called Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. But the question is, how do we know that he's not a fake? And I want to suggest to you the virgin birth, the, 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 perhaps the most important reason the virgin birth is so important is, is how we know he's not a fake. But I was thinking as I was doing this of the movie Elf. Perhaps you're familiar with this. Uh, in the movie Elf, Will Ferrell uh, plays uh, Buddy the Elf. Have you seen this movie? And so basically Santa Claus is delivering presents one Christmas and a baby happens uh, to get into, into the sleigh and comes back to the North Pole with them. So they decide to raise him as an elf. But he grows like a regular human being. And so he's a ginormous elf uh, that ultimately they feel like they, we, he can't stay here. And so they try to get him to, back to meet his father. And uh, the scene we're going to watch here is him getting introduced to the big city, as it were. Uh, and you'll, you'll see as it, as it pulls up this idea of, of finding out a fake. So go ahead. <laughs> Passion fruit spray? Fruit spray? Sure. This is the North Pole. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. Time for the announcement. Okay. 
Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this for Oh, hi. Santa's coming. Santa. are you? Okay. What are you talking about? I'm Santa Claus. No, you're not. Uh, why, of course I am. <laughs> well, if you're Santa, what song did I sing for you on your birthday this year? Uh, a happy birthday, of course. <laughs> uh, so, uh, how old are you, son? Oh, You're a big boy. What's your name? Paul. And uh, what can I Paul, get you for Christmas? Don't tell him what you want. He's a liar. Let the kid talk. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? Just cool it, Zippy. You sit on a throne of lies. Look, I'm not kidding. You're a fake. I'm a fake? Yes. How'd you like to be dead? Huh? No, he's kidding. You stink. I think you're gonna have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. Okay. Good. <gasps> he's a monster! He's a fake! He's a fake! Buddy the Elf knows he's not Santa Claus because he's been with Santa Claus. See, what makes the virgin birth not a fake, is because, or what makes Jesus not a fake, is the virgin birth because he's from God. He is God. It changes the whole equation. When I was thinking about this, there are a lot of fakes in the world, aren't there? Uh, and the Bible tells us there, that there would be a lot of fake saviors that will come our way. Uh, the angel had said to, to Joseph, Name him Jesus because he's going to save the people from their sins. Uh, we know that Jesus, his real virgin birth, helps prove that for us. But there are lots of fakes in our life. Lots of things that vie for the position of Savior in our life, aren't there? I, I want to name three of them. Um, and these are more big, generic ideas. There are probably lots of smaller ones that apply particularly to you or to a few of you. And, and you can sort of work with this as the week goes on. Uh, let me suggest to you three things. And <clears throat> what we know about fake saviors is they always come from man. Right? They're always begotten of man, as it were. When Jesus is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, fake saviors are always begotten of man. So let me start with, with one that maybe will rile some people a little bit. Religion is a fake savior. Religion is a fake savior. It's man-made. Even Christian religion, even this organization that we're sitting at here today, 
is man-made, right? The Christian and Missionary Alliance appointed some church planters to come, and we decided how we would do this, and we picked a name. Like We prayed about these things, and we believe that God has led us, but at the end of the day, man is still involved in it. And so if we're only looking to the church for salvation, then we've missed the boat because the church is imperfect. It's led by imperfect people. As highly as I, I think you all think of me, the church is led by imperfect people. I'm joking, by the way, just so you don't think that I've got a complex here. Uh, church is led by imperfect people who will let you down and who will not be perfect, and who will not be uh, perfect replications of God himself, but Jesus is. Now, some people have suggested that all religions lead to God, and there's a certain sense in which that is true on the surface, but it's completely false as soon as we scratch below the surface, right? Because what religions do remind us is that we need saving. There's an issue that something needs to be dealt with. The problem is that religion then sets up religion as the savior to the problem, either by attending church or by doing a number of works, by earning things. When Jesus comes, why we know he's real, the virgin birth here shows if he's from God, he says that he'll take care of it himself. That's what makes this totally different. Hey, we're called Christians because we follow Jesus, because culturally that's what people call us. I've tried to start using the word Jesus follower because I think it embodies better. Christian is, is much more religion followers of Jesus. We're called Christians because we follow Jesus, but we are not saved because we're Christians. We're saved because we have trusted Christ. It's a huge distinction. I know it may seem like semantics here, but I think if if we're not careful, religion becomes a savior that vies for our affection and tries to take the place of Jesus. For pastors and priests and missionaries, as well as lay people, the church becomes the thing. And we start to count our holiness by how well we attend the church or order our lives as the church tells us to. When we ought to be counting our holiness by how well we do the things that Christ has called us to do. And how well we have ordered our life according to how Christ has ordered our life. I don't mean to be a religion basher. I happen to like religion. I would be in a very bad job if I didn't like religion, right? But what we need to remember is that if this church that if Christian religion, if the universal church isn't always pointing us to Jesus, and there will be times that it won't because it's imperfect, that Jesus is the main thing. Religion will vie for the position of Savior in our life. It will. And we need to be careful to remember that, as Buddy the Elf says, religion smells like beef and cheese, right? Not like Santa Claus. Second thing, government. Government will vie for the position of Savior in our lives. Now, we are not a political church. If you've been attending here long, you know that I never talk about politics. I just think it's, it's unimportant in what we're doing here. Uh, that you have political persuasions, that you're passionate about them, I think that's fantastic. Uh, I'm, I don't say that to say that politics or political thoughts are incorrect, but we're here to talk about Jesus, not about what side of the aisle someone ought to sit on. And quite frankly, there are good followers of Jesus who are on both sides of the issues, and that's fantastic. But there is a danger, no matter what persuasion you are, that government will vie for the position of Savior in your life. And so if an election doesn't go your way, and I come see you, and you are living in this morose, sullen display for the next week, I can pretty much know that government has the position of Savior in your life. 
or, or if a particular issue doesn't go your way, or uh, if, if um, a certain talking head on whatever channel it is becomes the person that you go to for truth rather than Jesus. Government is always vying for that because government needs that to maintain its position, right? Government is not a bad thing. Please don't hear me. None of these things I'm talking about are bad things. In fact, Paul writes in Romans that uh, God has instituted these governments and has put these people in place. That can be a difficult thing for some of us, depending upon which persuasion you are and how you think of these things. So government is not a bad thing, and God is in it. But when we let it usurp Jesus, we've given ourselves to the wrong Savior. Government will not save you. It will not always provide for you. It will not always meet your needs. There will be times when you're on the short end of the stick. Even as good of a government, as as wonderful as people who are leading a government, because they're human and fallen and imperfect, there will always be times when it doesn't meet your needs, when it's not there to provide, and perhaps we shouldn't be looking to it for those things anyway. Isaiah chapter 7, all the way through chapter 9, the situation in Judah and Israel is not good. Uh, and religion, in essence, has sort of gotten them there. Um, but one of the things that, that the prophet says in talking about the Messiah who's to come, the ultimate victor who God will send, is that uh, from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the government will be upon his shoulders. And, and the angel says to Mary, hey, this, this child of yours is going to be the fulfillment of the promise I made to David, and his kingdom will have no end. And so Israel's government, even as good as we may think that it is in the Old Testament, and remember God calls David a man after his own heart, and yet we read the stories of David, a fallen and imperfect government, right? And a fallen and imperfect government all the way through the Old Testament that ultimately leads them to exile as people, to God's wrath coming on them. But this prophecy of the one who is to come is talking about a kingdom of perfection that is going to be upon us. A kingdom of the Messiah that's going to come where, where the government will be whole and complete and the rule will be pure and perfect, where the world is finally going to be as it was meant to be. And we know that in Christ now we taste little pieces of that and it makes us want it more and more and more, but we wait for the second return of Christ for the fullness of it. But just know this, right? Government, as Buddy the Elf would say, smells like beef and cheese. It doesn't smell like Santa Claus, right? Jesus is our only true Savior. The third thing, and maybe this societally is a little bit more obvious, uh, money and possessions will vie for the position of Savior in our life. If I just have enough stuff, then I can feel safe and protected, and I can know that my future is certain. Right? You know what it's like to have not a big bank account and wonder what things are going to be like in six months. You know what it's like to have a big bank account and feel stable and secure. And what I've often found is even people who have big bank accounts, they're even a little bit more frightened than ones who have small because they, you know, they know what it took to get there and they're just holding on to it like crazy. Remember the prophecy of the prophet Haggai uh, to, the, to the Israelites who have returned to build the, build the temple? They've gotten this miraculous special provision to build this temple. And they've come back and they're starting to build it, and, and the people around them start to say, you know what, we don't want you to build this temple. We'd like you to stop, or we're going to take action against you. 
And even though God has come through on Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years, even though God has miraculously moved in Cyrus to let them go back and build a temple, I mean, this is ridiculous what's going on. Unbelievable moves of God. The people say, oh, the neighbors don't want us to do it. So we're going to stop. We'll put this aside. And then it says, uh, Haggai says to them, but what you have done is you've built for yourself paneled houses. Now, I don't know if your houses have paneling or not. When I grew up, my house had paneling in it. I think it's probably a dated reality. I don't know. But paneled houses in the times of Haggai meant expensive, luxurious living. They stopped building the temple and started building wonderful houses for themselves. And the whole message of Haggai was, hey, get back to the main thing. Now, if you're careful, you'll notice that he doesn't say in there, you know, level your houses. And build. But he's saying you've, your affections have been pulled too far. It's not bad that you have a nice house, but your full effort and affection have been pulled towards the wrong thing. Money is not bad. Possessions are not bad. In fact, God has used wealthy people to move his kingdom forward. If you've been blessed with wealth, that's a wonderful thing of God. I'm not here to tell you that money or possessions are a bad thing. Absolutely not. But they will vie for the position of Savior in your life, and so you must be careful. You must be careful. Unless you're close and connected to God, unless you're from the North Pole and know what Santa looks like, you know. This is the reality. Money and possessions will vie for that position. But Jesus must have it. He's the only one. And how we know he's not a fake is that he is not man-made. There is a heresy of old age that says there was a time when the Son of God was not. In other words, that he was created. And there are many uh, pseudo-Christian uh, organizations in our world that believe this. And it's, it's heresy. It's not orthodox faith. And they need complete reversal on that. Because to lose the idea of the divinity of Jesus is to disown the gospel. It can't be that way. Let me explain to you why. Why is it important that Jesus is God? Well, Jesus, what he has to do in coming to earth is live a perfect life so that he can be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. If he's coming only as a man, this is impossible. It's impossible because he's entering into what the Bible reminds us is a sinful system of offsprings, right? That, that this transmission of sin is seminal. In other words, that you are born that way. You don't just acquire it later in life because you're hanging around bad people. That you are disposed to it immediately and that it's part of who you are. And so if Jesus is born of Joseph, that's his reality. But he's not. And so that's how we know he's not a fake. It's how it enables him to live a perfect life and ultimately then for his sacrifice to be accepted by a holy God who demands perfection in our place. Why is the virgin birth important? Because he's not a fake. If we lose this, it changes everything. Second thing, and and we'll move through these things a little bit quicker. It's a demonstration of God's power. And this is important. So uh, you you notice the the end of that segment, uh, section we read um, in in Luke chapter 1 where um, this miraculous child is coming uh, through Mary. And then he also references Elizabeth, remember this, who's John the Baptist's mother, who she's already six months along, he's saying, and she was barren. She couldn't have kids, but she's having this miraculous child who will become John the Baptist. And we know the role that he plays in the move of the kingdom. He's the one who's out there announcing it uh, before Jesus even begins his public ministry. 
when barren women have children in the Bible, we need to stop and look. It happens a lot throughout the Old Testament. And when that happens, something very important is about to happen. So Abraham and Sarah, 100 years, right? And all of a sudden, this miraculous baby comes who is the seed of the full people of God. Remember Hannah and Penina? Remember the, the, the battle they have back and forth because Penina can have all these kids and Hannah can't have any? And she prays and prays and prays, God, just give me one child. And then when she is granted a child, when her womb is open, when she's no longer barren, she gives birth to Samuel, who ultimately God will use as a priest of his people, who ultimately God will use to tap the head of David as the promised king to come. And what about David? Well, we don't know about his birth, but we do know we've just got finished with the story of Ruth. It doesn't say that she was barren, but we basically know from Naomi's story that, hey, the chances of me having a child, therefore for you to have a child, are impossible, and yet God does it. When these things happen, something important is about to happen. So Naomi excuse me, Ruth gives birth to Obed, who at the end of the book of Ruth is said to be Naomi's child to show that this barrenness thing is happening, that God's overcoming the impossible. And Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David. When barren women start having children, what God is demonstrating is the unbelievable nature of his power, and that something very important, something very anointed is about to happen. And so it would be no other way than for God himself to come into the world and through what, in essence, is a barren situation. Now, Mary, is we don't know her to be barren, but it's a miraculous, non-human form of birth, and it's wrapped right in with the story of Elizabeth being that way, that God comes in power. Now, I, I wanted to read from the ESV for, for this particular verse, and perhaps you caught it. Verse 37, this is the way that, that, uh, that the ESV translates this, and I'll, I'll read some contextual verses. Let me start at verse 35. And the angel answered... The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There we go, this whole divinity aspect. Uh, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, uh, who is called barren. Here we go in verse 37. I just love this translation. I think it's really good. For nothing will be impossible with God. Memorize that one. It won't take you very long. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. All of a sudden, this frightened woman who's reacting to this angel showing up and saying, you're a most favored person. I bring you good news. And she's going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Not to mention the fact that an angel has showed up and that would freak us all out to begin with, right? But the word in specific that God is giving to Mary is that nothing will be impossible with me. The virgin birth is so important because it demonstrates that perhaps in the most unbelievable way, doesn't it? Nothing will be impossible with God. How much do you think that Mary came back to this remembrance throughout Jesus' life? As he grew up, as he started his public ministry, as he announced his Messiahship, as he went to the cross, as he died on the cross, as they were the first women to go there to the grave and it was found empty. How much more was this reality coming more and more and more to life for that nothing is impossible with God? And we find right here 
the beginnings of the reality of the resurrection. Luke is setting the stage for us in recounting these words of the angel, the voice of God, the mouthpiece of God in this instance, that nothing will be impossible with God. Because the story of Jesus is going to take an unexpected turn at the cross, right? You've got this unbelievable story of this Messiah coming, he's building a following, and they go to Jerusalem, and the story should then say that they take over and they institute the kingdom, but the story doesn't say that. It takes a strange right turn, doesn't it? And he lays himself down and dies on a cross for the sins of the people. And he dies a physical death. But nothing will be impossible with God. And so on the third day, the tomb can't hold him. And he rises from the dead, and his victory over death ensures our victory over death if we would only be united with him. Nothing is impossible with God. I don't know the circumstances that you're facing. Some of them I do know. Perhaps the only thing you needed to hear this morning is these words of this angel from God to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. There isn't a situation you can find yourself in that God can't maneuver you out of. And I'm not suggesting to you that we need to dig ourselves into corners so that God can get us out of them. That's not the business of God. What I'm saying is there is nothing that God can't deal with. There is nothing that God's not aware of. There's nothing that God won't do. Nothing is impossible with God. Physical sickness is not bigger than God. We've seen it in our own small and growing church where God has overcome cancer and brought healing. Emotional struggles are not bigger than God. Relational struggles are not bigger than God. Situations at work are not bigger than God. Anxiety and stress and depression, they're not bigger than God. Nothing is impossible for God. And so sometimes when God knocks on the door of our heart, we have the reaction that Mary had. Wait a minute. But if we listen close enough, we hear the reassuring words of that nothing is impossible with me. Nothing is impossible. It says later in chapter 1, we'll talk about this a little bit next week when we talk about the shepherds, that uh, the shepherds came and told Mary what they had seen and heard and how they came to, to visit the baby. And it says that in Luke there that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Remember that verse? She took all these things and treasured them in her heart. Probably it means the whole thing, not just what the shepherds say. So I'm thinking here this angelic visit, that's one of the things she's treasuring. And these words that nothing is impossible with God, she's treasuring. She's keeping them. She's holding them very personally and close because she knows, as we all know, that we're wired to find ourselves believing other things in the heat of the moment, right? And unless we have tangible ways to bring ourselves back to the reality of Christ and the reality of the power of God, we will always look in other ways. In fact, we'll vie for other saviors. Remember the story of Joshua leading the people of God back into the promised land and the Jordan River is parted. You remember this? And the people of God are moving across the dry Jordan River and God tells them to stop in the middle of it and take out these 12 big rocks that will represent the people of God and when they get to the other side to build a monument to it so that all generations will remember what I've done for you today. Mary's doing that kind of thing. Isn't she treasuring these things in her heart? And so I wonder for you, 
mean, you probably have heard this truth before that nothing is impossible with God. And we love to hear it, and then in 30 minutes, it's, it's long gone, right? And we're living the realities of our life, and it's chaotic, and we're dealing with physical struggles, and we're dealing with relational struggles, the work is difficult, uh, all of these things. And, and the, the truth of God is, has moved through so quick because we've only allowed it to be an intellectual reality. It hasn't sunk deep into our hearts. It hasn't taken full residence in there. Can I suggest to you, maybe a practical way to deal with that is to build a monument like the people of God did. Now, I'm not suggesting that as you leave here you should pick up 12 rocks and build a physical monument. If you want to do that, fantastic. I won't stop you. But is there some way that you can have practical reminders in your life of the power of God for you? And maybe it's uh, an alarm you set on your cell phone for a certain time every day and when it goes off you remember nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1.37. Set it for one. 37 in the afternoon. Every time it goes off, you'll remember. It's a Joshua stone. It helps us to remember. And you'll find that it will go off in difficult circumstances and you will be reminded, that's right, none of these things are my Savior. Jesus is and nothing is impossible with God. Maybe it's a photograph. Maybe it's something else from a time where you saw God come in power. An artifact of some kind. And you just hold on to it and put it in a special place. And so whenever it catches your glance, you're reminded. It's the stones of the basin of the Jordan River for you. Listen, God knows how we're wired, right? He's not unaware of the chaotic reality of our lives that we're pulled in all kinds of different directions. It was no different, although in probably a much less intense way, for the people of God when they re-entered the land. He wouldn't have told them to build an altar otherwise, right? He would have just said, hey, remember, I did this for you. Don't forget. He he knows that we'll forget. You need to build a monument. And so Mary treasures these things in her heart. How can you do that? It's really, really important. The virgin birth is so important. And then the last thing, and we'll finish very, very quickly here. The virgin birth is so important because it shows the depth of God's love for us. Doesn't it? The angel shows up and says to Mary, Oh, favored one. And then he repeats it. You have found such favor in the sight of God. Now, what has Mary done to find this favor? Right? Do we have any accounts that she was like this wonderfully pious person? She probably was, but I don't, there's no, no record of that. If there was some reason for this favor that was important to say, the, the authors would have written it. You know? No, God favors her because he made her. God favors her because he loves her. God favors her because he's chosen her. And she becomes what theologians call the holy theotokos, right? It's a Greek word that simply means bearer of God. She's the vessel through whom God comes into the world. This doesn't mean that we need to give Mary a place higher than any other human being. What that does is take the place of Christ. We know that we have only one Savior. But we can admire her for her faith and for the way that God has used her. And then we can also remember what Paul writes to the Colossians. That all who have trusted Christ have, quote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. No different than Mary. God has so favored you. God has so loved you. God has so chosen you that Christ comes in you. Now this is the God of the universe. Who has come for and to you. It's the most dramatic and impressive love story that's ever been written in the world. 
He hasn't chosen you because you deserve it. He hasn't chosen you because of this long lineage of holiness, this resume that you've presented and you were selected amidst a bunch of others. He hasn't chosen you because you seem to have better capacity than someone else and he's planning for some great future through all of your abilities. He's chosen you because he loves you and because he made you and because he wants to be with you. And anyone that would in turn choose him will have that kind of unblemished bond with God the Father once again. You, in essence, then become the Mary of this story. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The angel comes to you and says, you are a most favored one. The God who was once far off and who demanded holiness has now come intimately into your presence and has created a way for holiness that you could not have on your own. Why is the virgin birth so important? One, because we know that Jesus is the real deal. He does not smell like beef and cheese. He's the real deal. He's the Son of God. He's from God. And there will be other things that vie for the position of Savior, and we must be careful, even though they are, many of them are good things, to keep them in their right place. To not usurp Jesus as the one and only Savior. The virgin birth is so important because, once again, and it's in its most profound way, demonstrates the power of God, that nothing is impossible with God. I would wager to say that, that many of you needed to hear that this morning. And lastly, and we all needed to hear this this morning, virgin birth is so important because it reminds us that God came for you. Entered into humanity, not simply by happenstance, but by choice of you. You to him are a most favored one. Let me pray with you. Father God, thank you for this sign which you gave to Mary and which has been recorded for us. The sign of the virgin birth, which is not simply a statement of doctrine that we recite when we recite creeds of the faith, but a tangible reminder that Jesus is who he said he was. He is not only a capable, but the definite Savior of the universe for all who would receive it. Thank you that it's a reminder of your power for us God, there are many in our midst who need to be reminded of your power. God, I pray that you might invoke that for the sake of your glory on their behalf. And most importantly, we thank you for the way that you have loved us. Perfectly, unconditionally, and almost always unreciprocated. You chose us. We thank you. Amen.